Hello and welcome. You are listening to an informed take on current events brought to you by law students and staff of Queen's University Belfast. This is LawPod. Hi and welcome to LawPod. My name is Robert Morgan and I'm an LLM student in Human Rights Law at Queen's University Belfast. I'm delighted to be joined today by Professor Bryce Dixon and Professor Tom Haddon. Our broad discussion today will focus on the origins of human rights research at Queen's, the study of human rights law and the role of university human rights centres. Firstly, could you both briefly introduce yourself to the programme? And Tom, I will open that floor to you. I started at Queen's in 1969 when the troubles began and I've stayed there ever since in one way or another. And I've been involved both as a journalist and also as a researcher in trying to understand and monitor what was going on during the Troubles and what kind of a Bill of Rights we might try to develop here in Northern Ireland. And I'm I'm Bryce Dixon. I joined Queen's in 1979 and have uh, been there more or less ever since, except for a stint quite a long stint actually, at the University of Ulster and at the Human Rights Commission. But like Tom, I've fairly recently retired and keeping active as I can on human rights and other issues. So in opening our discussion, Tom, can you tell us about the origins of human rights research and the Human Rights Centre at Queen's University Belfast? And could you tell us about the role students and staff played prior to the establishment of the centre? Well, I mean, the first thing is that Queen's was quite late in establishing a formal human rights centre. For example, Galway started in 1980, Essex started in 1982, Queen's didn't start until 1990, which was well on in the, uh, the development of the troubles and research into related issues. So uh, quite a lot of what went on in the early years uh, wasn't based in a human rights centre. It was based uh, in a number of academics, myself and Kevin Boyle and, and Paddy Hilliard. We did quite a few surveys of what was going on in the courts. We also were involved in collecting information on internment and giving evidence to the Gardner Commission on internment, recommending that it wasn't a very good system. And then later on, Kevin Boyle and I worked quite a lot on the the peace process from the New Ireland Forum in 1983 and 1984, and subsequently later, again independently of the Human Rights Centre, on issues relating to the proposed Bill of Rights in in Northern Ireland. I mean, for example, we had confidential discussions with the main constitutional parties at that time, two meetings in preparation for the, the, the Good Friday Agreement. So all of that happened independently. Some of it, particularly in the early stages, involved recruiting students and particularly in the surveys of the the Diplock courts and some of the work on internment, we used volunteer students to record details in the Crumlin Road courthouse every other uh, 
Friday afternoon when there wasn't much going on, we got permission from the Lord Chief Justice to access all the paperwork in relation to people who were charged, whether or not they were convicted or not. We had all the documents on the police interviews. And then after that, because we were concerned that that we were only getting a, a small sample of the people who were interrogated and charged, what about the ones who were interrogated but not charged? So we then got some funding from the Cobden Trust in London, and we employed Dermot Walsh to go out and interview people both in Republican and Loyalist paramilitaries to interview them as to what their experience had been uh, when they were arrested and interrogated but not charged. That was quite dangerous. Dermot Walsh uh, might have got into trouble. He might have been attacked or in in some way affected by it. But fortunately, it it all went well. And then uh, later on, we, we employed people that were called the, the Cobden Trust Research Students. One of them, uh, Stephen Greer, did a lot of work on shooting to kill cases. And then Colm Campbell did a lot of work on extradition cases. We found that that was rather better for doing specific uh, studies like that than employing groups of students. But in the early stages, employing groups of students to do the basic work on recording and uh, taking extracts from the depositions, from the the evidence of the interviews, that, that was crucial to our understanding of what was going on during the, the early stages of security during the Troubles. Therefore, is it fair then to attribute the origins of human rights centres at universities as a direct response to these human rights movements, as opposed to a platform for the dissemination of academic research? If I could come in on that, Robert, I mean, I think your question about student involvement, as regards Queen's, it's true to say that there was substantial general student involvement, not not just law students, but students across the university in, in the late 60s, of course, very much involved in the civil rights movement. But there wasn't really a connection between that and law at Queen's, as far as I could work out when I came came back to Queen's in the late 70s. In fact, the, the structure of the law degree at the time didn't really enable students to do very much work on human rights. There, there were no courses on, on human rights at Queen's or at many other places at that time. There were simply courses on the administration of justice or you might get something on civil liberties, but but nothing on international human rights law, that's for sure. That really only developed in the 1980s. My own involvement wasn't so much with the, the students that, that Tom is talking about, although I, I certainly acknowledge the work that Colm Campbell and Stephen Greer and, and Dermot Walsh did. But there were other students who were involved in the, a non-governmental organisation which was established in 1981, the Committee on the, on the Administration of Justice, which grew partly out of the, the, the peace people organization and and also saw itself as a kind of successor to other NGOs such as the Northern Ireland Association of Socialist Lawyers and the Association for Legal Justice, both of which were mainly made up of practitioners but were not terribly well organized and had no funding to, to, to do substantial reports or interviews. 
So when the CAJA got up and running in, in 81 and then did begin to get some funding and, and employ somebody, a woman called Patty Sloan, as its secretary, that's when I and others from Queen's got more involved in things like working on a better system for dealing with complaints against the police, further work on the emergency powers, building on what Tom and others had done, trying to persuade the British government that um, adding and adding more and more counter-terrorism powers to the statute book uh, and not putting in safeguards to protect human rights was not was not the way forward. In fact, it was, was making the troubles worse than they already were. And also the CAJ worked a lot on the on the Bill of Rights ideas that, that Tom has mentioned already, going so far as to eventually draft a Bill of Rights in the early 90s, based very largely on the European Convention on Human Rights. Because at that time, throughout the UK, on the back of Lord Scarman's work and others, there was a great um, movement to incorporate the European Convention on Human Rights into domestic law, which eventually happened, of course, through the Human Rights Act in 1998. But in general, I think at Queen's in the 70s and 80s, there wasn't really the degree of involvement in justice issues in a systemic way uh, that I think there needed to be and, and that has developed in later years. That's that's not quite true, Bryce. As well as the, the work that Kevin Boyle and Paddy Hilliard and I did on emergency law issues, there was a, a, a lot of student activity in advice centres based on some of the courses at Queen's on social security law. And quite reasonable numbers of students signed up as volunteers to a, a body called ALAC, which was the Association of Local Advice Centres. Initially, they were divided into mainly Catholic areas and slightly fewer in, in Protestant areas. I and Norman Shannon and some others uh, were allocated because of our background to the Protestant areas. I was at one stage driving up in in my old car up the Springfield Road to the remnants of, of a Protestant community there in New Barnsley. Somebody took a pot shot at the car as I was passing. I think they probably suspected as me of being a, a member of the army uh, because they were also located in that area. So there was a little bit of danger in that as well, though as far as I know, nobody uh, was actually injured or attacked in that way. But there was a lot of activity by students going out to advise members of the poorer communities on what their rights in social security law were. And that that died out a bit, I suppose, in the 1980s. I'm not quite sure why, but it just didn't didn't survive partly i suppose because the government set up a more formal organization paid by the government to assist in that but it was certainly the student uh, involvement which made it possible in the 1970s and early 1980s that's really interesting can i just bring you back to your discussion about student involvement and in particular the role of students in human rights movements in an interview, Kevin Boyle, a former professor of law at Queen's, said that the civil rights movement is something I don't look back on with a great deal of pride. It was a mistake. If we had known the results, the go-ahead couldn't have been justified. As a friend and colleague of the late Professor Boyle, 
I'm wondering with hindsight how you would view a counter-argument relating to student-led movements as key drivers of social change. Can human rights movements in practice really be viewed and judged in a hindsight manner from now, when such movements at the time of the 70s were an attempt to highlight injustices at that time? Injustices that a legal structure may not have been able to remedy at that time. So I'm just interested to hear, Tom, your opinion on that when you speak about students' involvement and when you look back on it now with regret or without regret, or where, where do you look back on it now from well, 2020? Uh, I wasn't in Northern Ireland. I was over in, in England as a junior lecturer in uh, the University of Kent. I decided that when the, the troubles broke out, my place was back at home uh, in Portadown and in Belfast to see what I could do to assist in resolving the issues. I actually moved into a flat with Kevin Boyle. Kevin Boyle had uh, run the People's Democracy, which was uh, not entirely, but largely based uh, in the, the, the law faculty as it, as it then was. And Kevin at that stage was running the People's Democracy, which was student-led and was uh, crucially involved in marches on the streets and in campaigns. Kevin was the press officer. So the, the, there was a lot going on as things developed. Kevin was also uh, running the rent and rate strike against internment while I was setting up uh, a, a small magazine of a middle-of-the-road variety, a magazine called Fortnite, which published a lot of the stuff that uh, Kevin and I and Paddy Hilliard and others were doing uh, long before it was possible for them to be uh, included in, in law journals. Uh, we could finish a survey on the Diplock courts or a survey on uh, the people who were joining up as volunteers in the IRA and also in loyalist uh, counterparts. We were able to publish that within weeks of finishing the work on, on the survey and that, that also was, was quite important. So, yes, I mean, Kevin did regret. He used to talk to people like me and, and others that if he had realised that the street protests would lead to the kind of communal conflict, armed conflict that developed, he would have drawn back. But at the time, it was just after the, the civil rights movement in America in 1968 and what happened in Belfast was a direct development of that, except insofar as it degenerated into armed armed conflict between the, the British Army, the IRA, and the, the Loyalist paramilitaries reacting to, to that. So yes, I think if he had known that that was what was going to happen, he, he wouldn't have done it. But on the other hand, as things stood in Northern Ireland in 1968 and 1969, there was clearly a need for marches and protests, and the students played, uh, particularly the People's Democracy, provided a, a large amount of support for that. Kevin Boyle was at the front of that. Uh, whenever there was a problem, Kevin would be sent forward to talk to the police and to see if he could negotiate some sort of a deal which would uh, avoid the violence that might otherwise have occurred. So he was uh, always trying to avoid uh, confrontations and violence, but some others in the people's democracy were more keen on not creating, but not stepping back from confrontation, where that is what emerged. 
in fast forwarding then to the 1990s, I guess, and the establishment of a human rights center at Queen's. Could you specifically tell me how that center was established? And do you think the goals of human rights centers at universities have changed? Or in fact, what do you think the goals of such centers should be? Well, I think the Human Rights Centre was established in 1990, more or less to support the students who were doing the Masters in Human Rights Law, which had begun a couple of years earlier than that, and to provide a kind of hub for academics in the law faculty, as it was at that time, to work collectively on rights issues, to apply for grants, to support each other in publications, in journals and books. Following, as Tom has said, the lead given by places um, such as Essex and Galway, it was still, I think, the, the third the third human rights centre to be established in these islands. There's now virtually one in every university in these islands. It, it was never uh, a huge organisation with lots of money or premises at its disposal or anything, but it did provide a, a sort of um, focal point for people to, to rally around, to, to um, gain support from. Our, our colleague Stephen Livingstone uh, joined us around that time and was, was very active in the Committee on the Administration of Justice that I mentioned earlier and, and himself was a great scholar on the human rights front, writing books on prisoners' rights and on the inter-American system for human rights. So I think that human rights centres have developed. They're not, as it were, an alternative way for students to to be activists in the way that was described earlier. They're basically more scholarly centres or institutions furthering study and scholarship in national or regional or international human rights law. And I'm glad to say that the Human Rights Centre at Queen's I think there must be well over a thousand graduates of the Masters in Human Rights program, many of whom are, are occupying prominent uh, positions in, in these islands and and elsewhere. The person who is, I think she's just um, stepped down from being the chair of the Equality and Human Rights Commission in Ireland, is a graduate of ours. The, the deputy chief constable of the PSNI, the police service, is a, a master's graduate in human rights. So our centre, like other centres, have seen it as their mission, really, to spread the word about the importance of human rights. And they, they now do things like submit amicus curiae briefs to international courts, trying to persuade international judges that if they were to apply international human rights standards in a certain way, then such and such would be the outcome of the, the case they're looking at. So yes, the goals of human rights centres have changed, but I think you know, for the better, probably. I was actually involved both in the establishment of the the Committee on the Administration of Justice following uh, on internment, and that did quite a lot of of the kind of work that that Bryce is talking about, taking cases and making submissions and so on. I'm not sure that very much of that was taken on by the Human Rights Centre. One of the difficulties was that uh, Stephen Livingston set it up in, I think it was 1990, as Bryce said, in coordination with the 
the development of the master's course in human rights. And the master's course at that time was was two focuses. One was discrimination law and the other was emergency law. And both of those were clearly very relevant to what was going on in Northern Ireland. The first batch of students on the, the human rights master's course were the kind of people that, that Bryce was, was talking about. One of them became the, the chief coroner, John Leckie, and another, Evelyn Collins, became the chief executive of the Equality Commission. And Beverly Jones set up her own practice on uh, equality issues. So it was a very high-powered initial batch of students, people well on in, in their careers, came to the initial courses and then went back and uh, applied what they, they were doing. I'm not sure that the, the Centre in Human Rights has done as well as some others. For example, in Essex, they have developed a, a, a very active alumna our alumni campaign to keep in touch with all the people who have passed through Essex. That was something that Kevin Boyle was uh, very keen on. And particularly in the early years under Stephen Livingston, it was in running courses for local solicitors. Stephen also built a relationship with the British Council and he took parties of us to Nigeria to try to spread the word about human rights in difficult circumstances as, as they were at that time in, in Nigeria. One of the memories I have of is sitting, sitting in Abuja at a British Council um, seminar on the development of human rights. I was sitting beside Ken Sarawiva, who was uh, a minority rights person, for the people that, that lived in the, the Niger Delta, he and I were talking about the, the, the human rights of minorities. And there was a, a very sinister chap from the, the government sitting, listening to all that was said. And at one stage, somebody asked him what his views uh, were. And he said very quietly and in a slightly sinister way, I've been listening very carefully to everything that has been said. And a couple of weeks later, Ken Sarawivo was arrested and he was eventually executed. So that, that's also on, on my mind that one has to be a little bit careful about uh, what, what one does in, in other countries. Tom, when you speak about human rights centres, you were saying to me about the ideas of promoting campaigns and the financing of such centres. I'm wondering, in light of that, what direction you now think the study of human rights law at universities should take students and researchers? Well, at, at one stage, I think it was probably about 10 years after the centre had been created, we had some discussions as to you know, what the, the role of the centre should be. Should it just continue to be the host of seminars and uh, small conferences on various aspects of human rights? My view at that time was that it would have been a good thing for the Human Rights Centre at Queen's to establish itself as a centre of excellence for the the issues that Belfast was uh, already known about, like peace process, like emergency law and so on, and to develop the work that, that had been done. There was some resistance to that. People uh, 
were saying that it, it would be a bad idea to concentrate on a particular area of communal conflict, of peace processes, of emergency law and so on, that it was better to have a broad uh, sweep. My view was that if, if the Human Rights Centre at Queen's was going to uh, make an impact globally or certainly in, in Europe, it needed to specialise in some area and to establish itself as uh, you know, the key place to go for dealing with those issues. But that never really happened. It just continued to be rather a general academic body which had seminars and discussions and so on, but uh, didn't really involve the students very much in it, certainly in my time. And Bryce, I guess a question over to you then. How would you argue that Queen's researchers have contributed to the broader landscape of human rights in Northern Ireland and beyond? I think uh, his point is, is well made that the Human Rights Centre itself didn't provide the support, but then it couldn't really support supply the support because it didn't have money itself to to splash out on such projects. It, a conscious decision was taken at that time that the centre was not going to try to emulate the likes of Essex and Nottingham, which were putting a lot of effort into raising funds so that they could organise you know, training courses and the like for judges from around the world, uh, specialised courses for foreign students, etc., all of that kind of work, which is, you know, very praiseworthy and, and, and deserving of support, requires a lot of effort and money and, and central university support, initially at least, to, to pay for administrators and probably premises as well. Uh, Queen's wasn't willing to, to give that kind of support. Tom, Tom's right to that extent. But a lot of work was being done by by very good scholars, you know, in the last twenty or thirty years. The research environment for university lecturers has become very, very much more competitive than it ever was. The um, research assessment exercise that was introduced in the nineteen eighties, whereby every academic was measured in terms of their publications and how internationally excellent or not their publications were had a profound effect, I think, on institutions like human rights centres because, frankly, academics you know, couldn't really afford the time to administer institutions or even to spend much time doing individual work with, with students, the kind of work that Tom was suggesting the human rights centre should have been doing. The time was spent on, on teaching the courses and on one's own individual research with one or two others perhaps for funding councils. So human rights centres couldn't really take the credit and weren't in a position to help very much with those sorts of projects. Now, the, the picture may be changing slightly because the research assessment exercise, which is now known as the research excellence framework, isn't quite as oppressive a, a system as it used to be, thereby freeing up academics to do more work uh, of the kind that, that Tom has talked about. So, you know, going forward, the Human Rights Centre may decide to to go down that path, but it will require um, significant resources for it to have any real impact, I think, on human rights issues around the world. That leads interestingly to my following question. Really, to what extent then do you see universities playing a role in challenging human rights injustices in the future? 
In particular, I'm thinking of large student involvement in the demonstrations in Hong Kong and Belarus, for example, and the broader retrenchment towards human rights. And whether or not this is really students-driven or where, did, where does the university come into play in this regard? Well, it's not going to be very practical for students in Belfast to take planes to Hong Kong. So student activism of that kind is likely to be specific to the places where the problems occur in Hong Kong or at the moment in, in Belarus or, or in other places. There are opportunities for students in those places to do what was done here in Northern Ireland in 1968 and 69 to go onto the streets. Uh, it's, but there is the internet and uh, a lot of campaigns are developed on the internet. You don't have to go to Hong Kong to develop a campaign or go to to Xinjiang to talk about what's happening for the, for the Uyghurs or to Belarus there. Uh, there are opportunities for students and, and others with time and energy to engage in that sort of internet campaign. I think as we all become <laughs> subjects of the internet these days, uh, it's not entirely clear to me what a human rights centre in Belfast or in Essex can do about what's going on in Hong Kong or in, in Belarus other than, than providing support or writing about it. So there are different things for students to do uh, at different circumstances in different countries. As I say, my feeling was that in Belfast, we should have developed the Human Rights Centre as a centre of excellence on some of the issues of discrimination and communal conflict and peace processes that could have been developed. Bryce is right that the university authorities centrally and also probably the leadership in the law school at that time didn't, didn't see it as their role to recruit people specifically to join teams in the in the human rights field, they were more interested in, in getting people with publication records in other areas so that there wasn't the commitment at a university level or even at the, the school of law level to put resources into the, the human rights uh, area as a, as a center of excellence on those sorts of issues. I think that was wrong, but I fail to persuade people of that. I think it's worth acknowledging that although the Human Rights Centre hasn't specialised in the way that, that Tom hoped it might, it, it has nevertheless been a centre of excellence in terms of other particular issues. I mean, it's a matter for debate as to what extent you can associate individual academics with the Human Rights Centre, but the fact remains that colleagues that we have, such as Luke Moffat, for example, who's done very good work in Uganda and on the, the, the peace process there and de dealing with paramilitary violence or the work of, of Rachel Killeen in relation to the right to truth in Cambodia, Louise Malander's work on amnesties across the world, Kieran McAvoy, another of our colleagues and who was a student at Queen's as well, is he has contributed very significantly to the, the uh, peace process in Colombia and still is involved in that. So there's a lot of very, very 
top-notch work done by academics who are members of the Human Rights Centre on, on different issues across the world. It's true that the Human Rights Centre and the students who are associated with it through doing law degrees or master's degrees at Queen's will never be able to do the kind of activism or, or it wouldn't be appropriate for them as students in the law school to to engage in, in activism on the streets in the name of the Human Rights Centre, but they can, as law students and, and people with knowledge of international human rights standards, do a great deal to, to publicise the abuses of human rights happening in places like uh, Belarus and, and Hong Kong. When it comes to, to street movements, there's this strange phenomenon, not just in in Belfast, but uh, across the Western world, I think. It's much easier to bring people out onto the streets to complain about human rights abuses in in the USA, for example, the Black Lives Matter campaign, than it is to get people out in the streets when the Chinese are oppressing people in Hong Kong or whenever a dictator in Belarus is rigging the elections. Those aren't sexy issues to, to, to students to the degree that they ought to be, perhaps. But that, that tells us something about our, our priorities these days. But yes, the academic work, which can be done at the student level, the postgraduate level, the academic research lecturing level on human rights is very valuable and ought to be promoted as much as possible. And I guess one final question then that really merges the protest element and the classroom element. Human rights law jurisprudence often alludes to a treaty or a convention as a as a living document, and that the words within a convention should be interpreted and applied with the meaning at the time of a decision. When you look back at the climate of the Troubles and the application of human rights law at that time, I'm wondering how you contrast that climate to the study of human rights law today, where human rights principles are almost accepted as a given. Do you believe that we sometimes forget the extent to which human rights are constantly evolving and that principles should not just be accepted as a given? I'm thinking of students in classrooms today that are studying European human rights law, for example, and when you read Article 2 cases, you feel like you are away from these issues. And I'm wondering how, how you felt being involved and around in the conflict. How did that give you perspective on studying human rights law? How did that feeds into uh, student studies of human rights law today? Well, I, I tried to do some of that kind of thing when the, the, the master's course really got going. I used to take groups of students over to the the UN Working Party on Minorities and involved them in, in preparing statements and visiting and seeing how that particular Working Party was, was operating. And I think that, that was quite useful to for have some, somebody like me who had access to the Working Party on Minorities to be able to take with me four or five students there was some funding from the faculty or, or school of law at the time. Not sure if that's uh, still going on at the moment, but I felt that was a useful way of engaging student volunteers in observing and taking a small part in the proceedings in these Geneva-based UN operations. So, yes, there are possibilities on that, but it, it, you can't easily take 20 or 30 people with you. You can take four or five and get permission for them to join you in the hearings at these UN institutions in Geneva and elsewhere. 
that that kind of work has continued to to a lesser extent. I think in in recent years, we, we, we've sent students to Strasbourg and and Geneva to to meet various people and, and sit in on various meetings there. But more generally, Robert, I think your your point uh, is well made. If you're suggesting that you know times have changed and the focus for for human rights has perhaps changed. I think that's that's true, certainly as regards environmental issues and, and climate change. You know, that's a, a very prominent human rights issue today in a way that it never was in, in the seventies and eighties. And it's it's comparatively easy to get uh, young people interested in, in doing something about those issues and developing human rights norms to help convince governments and intergovernmental organizations that, that something really has to be done. It raises the broader question, of course, about you know what what are human rights? Are, are they just what's what's written down in in legal texts, or or are they more than that? Are they like values cognate to the ideas of justice and and fairness and so forth? Because if you are defining them in that broader sense, then then all sorts of students, not just law students, should really be taking an interest in doing work on on human rights. But I think human rights centres have a healthy future. They, they may not um, be easy to resource, but they do serve a, a very helpful function in in being a badge that can be attached to all sorts of campaigns and and scholarly work that, that makes it more credible on the world stage. Thank you very much. Um, we could do a whole podcast on the meaning of human rights, but I think this episode will be of use to students and researchers a lot. So I'd like to thank you both for your time. You have been listening to LawPod, an informed take on current events brought to you by the law students and staff at Queen's University Belfast. LawPod is funded by the Queen's University Law School. Please follow us on Twitter and Instagram at QUB LawPod. For more information, you can also visit our website, lawpod.org. And please have a look at the show notes for more information about the topics covered today. You can find us on iTunes, Spotify, or anywhere else you get your podcasts. Thank you for listening. This was LawPod.